in the book of Nehemiah. We are walking verse by verse through Nehemiah. We're in chapter 4, um, walking through verses 1 through 14. Let me ask you, we'll kick it off with a question. This will be a simple one, an easy one. What's your greatest fear? How's that for a icebreaker? What's your greatest fear? Anybody know off the top of their head? Yeah. Something that happens to your kiddos? For sure. Anybody else? Anything you can think of being put on the spot? Yeah. To um to have a, a messed up relationship with God. It's not good, for sure. Imagine if we walked through each and every one of us, we would have a variety of um topics and themes and things that we all fear you know some of us we fear physical death whether it be our own death or the death of loved ones people around us that we care about and that's devastating to think of some of us live in torment and bondage thinking about what if that crisis hit or you got that phone call or you found out you had cancer or um, you find yourself in emotional turmoil maybe you find the anxiety um, the depression just gets so bad that you you can't handle it anymore, and you've been trying to handle it for a while, but what if it gets really crazy, um, and you can't, or whatever the crisis might be for you, um, we'd probably find one overall theme, and that is uh, most of our fears, most of our worries uh, revolve around a shakable kingdom. What I mean by a shakable kingdom is our own kingdom, our own lives, our own flesh, our own thoughts, our own um, goals and dreams and the things that are us, that make up us as individuals. And apart from Christ, we all have very shakable kingdoms, things that can be broken. Our bodies can be broken. Our emotions can be broken. Um, Things go wrong. Sometimes you can control it. Sometimes you can't. Um, And the world doesn't know freedom from this shakable kingdom because that's all that the world has is ourselves. And so we want to be our own gods and we do our own things and um, we fight this constant battle that what if our shakable kingdom gets shaken to the point that we can't control it and so we're going to be talking tonight about a different kind of kingdom that's what we've been talking about for the last five or six weeks but in nehemiah chapter 4 verses 1 through 14 we're talking about the unshakable kingdom now nehemiah as many of you know in the old testament he's building a wall he's rebuilding jerusalem and it's a kingdom that's strong it's going to be strong um, but even it's shakable it's something of this earth and we as uh, kingdom builders, not a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom where Jesus is Lord, he's the king, uh, we're part of an unshakable kingdom. That the kingdom of God is unshakable. That for 2,000 years there's been persecution, there's been hardship, there's been uh, heresy, there's been all kinds of things that have tried to, to rock it, to shake it, to say, okay, God's not real, God's not true, Jesus can't be Lord, he's not going to be ruling over anything, but the world can't shake the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God shakes the world. And it always has. And it's the only thing in your life that will ever be unshakable. And one day you're going to be with God in heaven if your faith is in Christ. And you're going to experience it in its fullness. But on earth you'll have a tension between your shakable kingdom and God's unshakable kingdom. And the beauty of being a disciple maker is you get to enjoy the unshakable kingdom as it grows in your own heart and life. But you get to bring this unshakable kingdom to everyone out there that it would grow and spread throughout the world. um, The world would know. Jesus as Lord. And so Nehemiah is going to teach us in the physical uh, some things that we can learn in the spiritual about being disciple makers. And the goal is expanding this kingdom out there, but expanding it in here. 
And here's the thing, before we jump into these verses. When you start to take the mission of God serious, and you say, I want to make an impact. I want to help other people follow Jesus. Because we're all the mission of God, aren't we? Like, God wants access to your life. He wants to save you. He wants to change your life. Um, The question is, are we going to all go from being just the mission of God to being part of the mission of God, where he's not just trying to work in you uh, to save you, but he wants to save you and then work through you uh, to minister to other people. And if you take that calling serious, the calling to minister to other people, um, you're going to have some identity crisis. There's going to be things in the faith that you won't be able to ignore. Who are you? What am I worth? What's my value? What's my identity? Because you will be attacked in ways that you don't uh, necessarily realize when you first sign up. And we'll jump into more of that when we uh, dig into these verses. Um, But every part of you and your faith will be tested if you take disciple-making serious. Now, at first, that sounds like a horrible way to jump into a sermon. But there's actually a ton of freedom and confidence that we're going to find in Christ tonight. So, big picture in Nehemiah. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's building a wall, and as we walk through the next whole bunch of weeks in those chapters, um, we're going to see crisis after crisis after crisis. Crisis on the outside, people trying to tear this wall down. Crisis on the inside, people discouraged. Spiritual warfare, opposition, enemy. we're going to see a whole bunch of stuff, but good leaders know how to push through. They know how to point to the Lord, keep us on track, and accomplish what um, the Lord wills. And so, we're going to jump on in. If you've got a Bible, feel free to open it. If not... I got one for you right up here on the screen. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Now in Sanballat, remember this is an old boy who in uh, the first couple chapters, he hated on Nehemiah, him and Tobiah. And they were the governors uh, of the provinces around Jerusalem. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of of his brothers and of the army of Samaria... So this would be just north of Jerusalem. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break it down. He will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts to their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. That's going to be interesting to preach. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to b- rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans and with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, 
to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So this is Nehemiah's brave heart moment, right? This is, this is when he's standing up. I can picture him as an old man saying to his grandkids, saying, you won't believe how crazy it got. Now, here's what happened in the trenches. And he's sharing these old war stories. And he's saying, I was there. I helped with this. We did this together. And this is his, this is his war story. So we're going to talk about an unshakable kingdom. It's all about leadership through opposition, through crisis. Um, in particular, our context is, uh, again, uh, building that spiritual kingdom, being disciple makers. So let's jump on in. I'm going to tell you five things. We could talk about a lot of things, but five things that we need to pull from these passages uh, as we walk verse by verse through it. The first three verses show us this, that number one, rocks will be thrown. Rocks will be thrown. It says that there's a whole bunch of junk done by Sanballat and Tobiah and comments that they made. Wasn't fun. When I was a kid, um, it's almost the 4th of July or it's coming up five, six weeks from now, and um, reminds me of, of fireworks. What was that one? We, we used to have bottle rockets and things that we probably shouldn't have had, but there was that one um, that you would, you, you'd like, shoot at your friends. Well, what, is, what were those called? Roman candles. Not good. I, this, is, this is one of those parts of the sermon where you say, don't, don't do this part. Um, but we used to do all kinds of goofy things like that. And I, remember, um, I remember one summer, one of my best friends, who my mom just happened to babysit, we would throw rocks at each other, and we were just kids having fun, and we didn't realize the seriousness of it, and um, it was right before his mom came to pick him up one night, and I threw a rock, and I threw it from like across the garden, so it's probably from that wall over to here, and we were dodging, and, we were, and I chucked this rock over, and it cracked him right in the head. It was like a David and Goliath gone wrong kind of a moment, and he bled, and he just started bleeding, and we um, obviously freaked out, and we went in, and we tried to take care of him and whatnot. But when his mom got there, she was like, what in the world are you doing? We had to explain that we were, we were throwing rocks at each other. Like, this was just this was just a game. No one was meant to be hurt. But we got put in our place as we were obviously rebuked and uh, got in trouble for it. You see, it's stupid to throw rocks. Like, what kind of a game is that? Of course, somebody's going to get hurt. Now, as you grow up and you become an adult, you generally don't throw many rocks at each other. Hopefully, you never did that as a kid. But we throw verbal rocks at each other, and that's what's going on here. It is, uh, this is the first tactic, right, uh, of the enemy, that if you can get someone's spirit discouraged, that you can stop what they're doing, right? If someone's got dreams, if they got goals in life, you know, if you can, you, you, physically, you don't have to try to stop them. If you can get inside here, if you can get inside here, you can stop them. And when it comes to even spiritual things, and people have a mind to do something for the Lord and with the Lord, um, then you can try to get in there. Uh, the enemy can, and, and he can try to stop by discouraging you. Look at all the things that were said. First off, Sanballat, who said he was angry and greatly enraged. Why? Because he knows if this grows, he's not going to have as much power as he did. He's up north of Jerusalem, and this thing is in rubble in Jerusalem. And he, he knows, I kind of control the area, and he's ticked. He doesn't want this to, to grow. And so he says to all these people, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps? 
over and over. So he's mocking them. He's threatening them. He, he's, he's making them feel like, you ain't good enough. You can't do this. All these verbal th- uh, stones being thrown. And Tobiah jumps in as well and says, yeah, if a fox goes on, do you ever have that one friend who at the very end of the fight comes in and says, oh, yeah, me too. And he's just a little guy. And he's like, dude, you're just a little guy. You, don't, you shouldn't even be a part of this. And Tobiah is jumping in at the end, and he's mocking him as well. Um, but think about what's actually being said here. And let's dig just a little bit deeper into the text. Because you can see for just from, you know, seeing it right at the beginning, you can say, well, okay, he's mocking him. There, there's a, some kind of threats. There's all kinds of um, doubts being placed on him. But think about it. Here, here's several things that I want to throw at you real quick as we walk through this um, that you can recognize even in your own life when you hear these kinds of things said to you. Uh, number one, um, they were sensitive subjects. Here's what I mean. Um, the very first thing he said was, what are these feeble Jews doing? Now, we know uh, throughout Nehemiah, they were greatly outnumbered. And, and they were rebuilding the wall because they hadn't previously built the wall up. They didn't know if they could do this. And it wasn't like they talked for years about it and said, here's the game plan. No, Nehemiah came in, and in a few nights, he did all the stuff he was supposed to do. He had a game plan, but he rallied the troops. And they built all this in 52 days. But at the beginning of those 52 days, they're not feeling super confident, right? They're feeling like, let's do this. You ever get really excited about something? You're like, I don't know if I can actually do it, but I'm pumped to do it. And that's where they're at. And so they knew there were sensitive things. They're not just going to throw any insult towards them. They're going to go towards things that, that are sensitive, open wounds. And so you need to know, if you're going to be a disciple maker, the devil knows where you're weak. He knows your flaws. He knows the things that have thrown you off. He knows your insecurities. He knows your fears. So don't be surprised when you actually take a step of faith for the Lord and you all of a sudden get hammered in the things that hurt you the most. The old devil has a way of doing that. He goes after the, the wounds that are open, the sensitive subjects in your life. Number two, he... Um, we see the enemy works um, through hyperbole or exaggeration. <laughs> of course, he says, what, what are they going to do, right? Um, Tobiah jumps in and says, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Really? At parts, this thing was 40 feet tall, 8 feet thick. You think a fox is going to obviously break this thing down? No, but like when you're doing something and you're a little insecure and someone says, what are you doing? Do you even have a clue what you're doing in your life? Like, how did you, how did you get this to this point? How quickly do we get discouraged and think, you know what? That's crazy. I was going to start this ministry and I was talking with my spouse about it and it was awesome. And we were like, yeah, we're going to do this together. And then I went and talked to the pastor. I talked to this other person. They're like, well, have you thought through this? Have you done that? And then I started thinking, maybe I haven't. And then maybe I shouldn't. I get that. That's just a ministry, man. You can, get ex- you, can get, you can get discouraged real quick. And people often, the enemy, will um, he'll discourage you through exaggeration, making things that um, are sensitive in your life over and over and over. Like, oh, you, you want to be married? Guess what? Uh, you're never going to get married. What's your track record? How many times have you been married? Well, I'm, I'm 25. I haven't got married yet. Right. You're never going to get married. And you think, man, I shouldn't even try. I shouldn't even do this. I got I to gotta desire in my heart to be married. Oh, you want kids? Yeah, I think the Lord has placed a desire in my heart to have kids. Guess what? You ain't never having kids. You ain't never having kids. And you just think, well, what? And you think, well, I'm 30. I'm 35. I haven't had kids. And I'm married. And maybe we won't have kids. We've been trying for five years, six years, seven years. Maybe we won't have kids. And, and so um, 
you got to watch for the enemy to not only hit those areas that are sensitive, but to over-exaggerate how bad things might be. Number three, the enemy is going to drive a wedge between you and God. He's going to make you doubt yourself and then doubt him. He says, what What are you guys going to do? Are you going to restore this yourselves? You can't do it. You're going to sacrifice? Like, your God going to come help you with this? Where's your God now? He's mocking him. You're going to finish this up in a day? You know that you've been working on this for years overall, and you're going to finish this in a day or two? Well, it took 52, but he didn't know that then. You're going to revive the stones? Are your God going to resurrect these stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Again, exaggeration because they weren't all burned. But again, that's how he works. The enemy works through these types of insults. You've got to watch them in your own life. This is what happens. Like Sanballat, like Tobiah, the world will be angry at movements of God, at the works of God. If you take disciple-making serious, recognize the world will be angry because you are forcing the world to deal with truths they don't want to deal with. Who, thinking that they're their own God, whether they would say that or not, subconsciously might live that way, who wants to be told, you're not God? You don't get to control things. You don't get to dictate things. To a non-believing world, that's the last thing they want to hear. Take that religion. Get that out of my face. You ever been mocked? You ever um, you ever done something for the Lord and felt like um, you just questioned yourself? Start to question him a little bit. I, I've told you guys in the past, I, I, keep, um, I keep some of my hate mail just for fun. Um, I haven't, thankfully, I haven't got any... Um, in the last few years, you guys are a nice congregation, I guess. Um, but the, the, those early days um, in Utah, I really got to the point where I dreaded going to the church building because there, there, it just seemed like on a regular basis there'd be something posted on, on the door, and I didn't know what to do with it. Um, the first thing I got, I was just there a couple months, and and I got this one. This was from a, a traveling. A Muslim fellow, and, you, and it just starts by saying, if you show me no mercy, as I define mercy, God show you no mercy, author of this, <laughs> in parentheses. Um, God, where is there a man who is bold, has courage, and is a man of virtue? If there be such a man, send him to me now, in all caps. So I'm like looking around like, um, uh, where are you? Who, who is this? So you get these, these random notes out of nowhere. You're like, what is going on? We're in the middle of the desert in Utah trying to plant a church. I don't even know anybody in this town. And I'm getting these kind of weird letters. And you're thinking to yourself, man, what do I do with this? This came from a, a fellow who uh, came to the church midweek. And um, it was a tiny church. Like the whole thing could fit inside, well, definitely inside this whole this room. Um, and so we we weren't there throughout the week for a lot of things. And um, so th- this one was, uh, says, what, are you, what you were doing is not of Christ, but rather of the devil. Amen, is what he says to himself. You know when you've got to amen yourself, it, you, it ain't good. Jesus says there is no good church in the world today due to the fact there is no good shepherd. Amen. For it is written, a good shepherd. I'm not amening this, by the way. He's, he's saying this to himself, but I'm just trying to be true to his thing here for it is written a good shepherd attends to the flock daily amen it is not written a good shepherd attends the flock once a, once or twice a week and has other perverted events amen jesus says the shepherd the shepherds of the church today are perverts amen and may never enter his kingdom amen 
Jesus says you are to consider Ezekiel 34, amen, repent, dash, dash, dash. Um, this is my, this is probably my favorite one. I can't read it to you um, because it's 22 pages of handwritten notes. Um, but I didn't know when I was going to get these things or what to expect. And I'm just a young pastor for the first time thinking to myself, I just want to make disciples. I just want to do what God has called me to do. And I can tell you there's a million opportunities for you to get discouraged. Rocks are going to be thrown, verbal rocks, maybe one day even physical rocks, but you've got to be prepared. Um, And I'll say this as we move on. The older we tend to get, the more we like to avoid criticism and stay out of the spotlight. Right, we want to live simple lives, and, and when we're teenagers, um, we'll put ourselves out there because we're trying to make a life for ourselves. But as we settle down, we get jobs, we get careers. We want to we want to stay away from places that people are going to um, judge us or dislike us or criticize us. And ultimately, um, we're not called to play it safe. If you're trying to protect your shakable kingdom, um, you're never going to be bold in Christ. And remember, it's okay to have some pebbles thrown at you. Don't let, First Peter says, we're stone builders. Jesus is the capstone, he's the cornerstone, and we are living stones, and he's building his temple on earth. Don't let pebbles stop stone builders, right? Don't let, don't let some pebbles that you're being pelted with stop a stone builder. Um, don't aim for comfortable, man. Take a risk. Get out there even though you know rocks will be thrown. Verses 4 and 5. Hear, O God. So this is a prayer. So immediately. Remember what he did back in chapter 1? Nehemiah. And standing before the king of Persia. He, he's, um, he's up against something that is scary. And he immediately prays. He doesn't, he doesn't pray just before or just after. In the middle of it, he prays. He shows that over and over in the book. Hear, O Oh, our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Second thing we see is that prayer is our primary weapon. It's our primary weapon. Now, there's two things. There's general prayer here um, that we need to talk about, and there's specific prayer. Let me just say this about um, general prayer. Uh, if you're going to build a spiritual kingdom, you need spiritual weapons against spiritual opposition. And we have spiritual weapons in Christ, right? We've got the Holy Spirit. We've got uh, prayer. Let me ask you, do you pray as a last resort or is it your primary weapon? If you want to make an impact, if you want to be a disciple maker, it's good to go meet people for coffee. It's good to go tell people about Jesus. It's good to serve the Lord in a variety of different ways. But you've got to be laying the groundwork for transformation through a prayer life for those people. You've got to be fighting for them in prayer. You've got to be praying because only God can do the spiritual work. right? He wants you to proclaim the message, to be an example of the message, to live the message. But if you're not praying, don't be surprised if you don't see much change. You've got to be praying. You've got to be praying. Um, Prayer is our primary spiritual weapon. But there's a second part of this, and that's the specific prayer. How would you preach this? This is what we call an imprecatory prayer. Ever heard that word, imprecatory? This is uh, an imprecation or a, uh, a spoken curse. Now, where you see this most, you see it some in Jeremiah um, a few times. Um, you see 
it mostly in the Psalms. And so there's different genres through the book of Psalms. There's thanksgiving and praise and, and lamentations, lots of different types of Psalms. Uh, many Psalms are a variety of genre all mixed in. But this is one that you see over and over called the imprecatory Psalms, where someone in, in Scripture is speaking a curse over other people. That's what we see here. Essentially, Nehemiah is, is praying, we're despised. Turn back what they're doing on their own heads. Don't cover their guilt. Don't blot out their sin. They provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. What a bold prayer. A little bit crazy. What do you do with this? You say, well, how in the world does this line up with Jesus' teaching to love our enemies? Like if all scripture is profitable, if it's God-breathed, profitable for teaching rebuking correcting training and righteousness what do we do with this um well let me let me give you um several parts of these imprecatory prayers so you can go back to the psalms um we could go through a bunch of them but we we don't have time um you can google it and probably find them real quick you you know the psalms i'm talking about where david or someone says something crazy like god crush my enemies from under my feet wipe them off the face of the earth do something horrible to that guy. And they're, they're cursing him. They're wishing harm on him. What do you do with him? Let's, let's say you can freak out at just seeing it, but let's break it down just a little bit. Here's, here's some things that we can tell that are good um, from both Psalms and what we see in Jeremiah and then here in this uh, two verses tonight. Number one, it's a call for help. He's saying, hear, O our God, for we're despised. He needs help. That's a good thing, right? That, that he needs help and he's calling on God. So that's not a bad thing. So that's nothing to freak out about. Number two, he loves justice and judgment. And ultimately, that's what he's asking for. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captive. So we've been exiled, um, and, and we're coming back from exile, and let them experience it. So he's not saying that he's going to do it. He's saying, God, let judgment reign. Let justice. We're called to love um, and to seek justice and mercy. And he's saying, you're a God of justice. You get glory from justice. Let justice happen. There's some inequality here. Let, this, let, them, let them experience this. Number three, there's a hatred of sin. They obviously don't like what, he, what they're doing. Nehemiah is praying, um, and he, he obviously hates the sin that they're committing. Let not their sin be blotted out from the, your sight. Don't cover their guilt. They've provoked you to anger. That's obviously biblical to hate sin. Number four, he's trusting God to act. He's not asking permission for himself to act. So this isn't him saying, God, I'm going to go, do something horrible to these people. I'm saying, God, I'm trusting you. I'm pressing into you. God, you do whatever your will is over these people. And ultimately, number five, it's authentic. <laughs> Prayer is authentic. And there's an element of this that's just his heart coming out. Now, let's ask ourselves the bigger question before we move on. Um, because I... I think this is probably what some of us are thinking. Should Christians pray imprecatory prayers? Like, what do, we, what do we do with this? Is this just something we look at in the Old Testament and say, oh, that was that, but Jesus says, love, and Paul says as well in Romans, love and bless and pray for your enemies, those who persecute you. Because we know that's obviously what we're called to do. So what do we do? Is there ever a time where we could or should be praying like this? Well, let me, let me simply say this. This is obviously, obviously a difficult um, 
thing to answer. You always love and pray um, and try to bless those who persecute you. That doesn't ever go away. Um, but as Christians, you've got to recognize a tension that sometimes you have to simultaneously do things. That you can, um, like, like my boy, um, I've got to discipline him. Sometimes he receives time out. Sometimes he, 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 he gets spanked. And there's, there's discipline um, and yet love at the same time. And so you have to be able to embrace the tension between those two. They're not at odds with each other. And so let me say this. If you think about all the circumstances, knowing we're called to love, we're called to pray, to bless our enemies. um, What if, I hate to say things like this, but let's just get crazy for a second. What if someone came in to a church gathering and had a gun and nobody was armed, forget about all that. But they came and systematically ended the lives of all the people in that room. So they took their time, one after another, one at a time. What are you going to pray in that moment? You're probably going to pray, God, stop them. Please stop them. Now, ultimately, you should want even that murderer to know the Lord, to be in heaven, right? So it's not like you you hate that person. Um, but in that moment, you're going to pray that justice is done. Because there's evil. And in the moment of evil, um, and you pray for their salvation. You pray for a lot of things. It's all good, and we should. Um, but you pray for it to end, <laughs> And for justice in that moment. And so it might not sound the same as some of the Psalms. It might not sound like this, right? We're called to have a heart that loves them. Um, but you're going you're gonna to pray for justice in that moment. Whatever God's will and how he wants that to happen, you're just going to pray it stops. The evil doesn't continue. And so you got to watch your heart. I would definitely recommend that. Your disposition is to bless, pray, love, not to um, not to curse. But it's okay to pray for justice, recognizing even that justice goes back on your own head. Like, right, if you want God's justice to come down, um, that we're humans too. Verse 6. So we built the wall. One of the... Um, the Hebrew can be translated, so we still built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, so up to 20 feet tall. For the people had a mind to work. So they haven't done it all, but they've gotten quite a ways. Third thing we see is that there's life after death to self. Here's what I mean. They just got ridiculed. They got insulted. If they cared, if they had insecurities... If they had a reputation that they didn't want to to, to lose, um, in that moment of experiencing all that Sanballat and Tobiah said to them, um, if they've got to choose, okay, we can build God's kingdom or we can fight for our own kingdom. Our shakable kingdom is getting shaken right now. We're being insulted or we can deny ourselves and we can just build his kingdom. If they stay with the shakable one, they ain't building no wall. They're leaving. But if they want to 
deny themselves. And Jesus tells us, if you want to be my disciple, you got to deny yourself. You got to pick up your cross. You got to follow me. There's self-denial involved every day. Uh, then this is what life looks like afterwards, and it's beautiful. He said, it's a, the insults didn't stop them. They kept working. They had a mind to do so. Uh, again, in the Hebrew, it says a heart to do so. For the people had a heart, or here, a mind to do so. They had set their mind to it. They had a heart that said, we're going to work. So we get it. We're being insulted. We're being attacked. This isn't fun. No one's like, wow, this is amazing. But I gotta, at the end of the day, i got to decide, am I going to keep building God's kingdom? When Jesus says that we've got to deny ourselves, the word in Greek literally means uh, to forget yourself. Silas, he'll, um, <laughs> on a regular basis, use the same excuses when we say that he needs to be obedient and say, hey, buddy, will you go pick up your toys? Or, and he'll be like super excited, everything will be good. But when we say something like, hey, pick up your toys, he'll, he'll, um, he'll just kind of melt. and be like, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. Or he'll say, um, if we say, Silas, um, Buddy, what happened over here? Um, he'll say, oh, I forgot. I can't remember. He did it like three minutes earlier, but he can't remember all of a sudden. And he's got all these excuses that he uses over and over and over and over. And, and I got to the point, um, and I'm to the point now where when he knows um, that we're asking him to be obedient, I stop him before he makes the excuse. And I say, whoa, 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 whoa. We'll talk, but let's be obedient first. He's thinking hates it. <laughs> I'll be honest. He hates it. Because what he's ultimately doing in that moment is saying, am I going to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, and my parents in this moment, or am I going to do what I want to do? And that's make excuses, be disobedient, and get out of doing what's right. And how many times do you and I sit in that moment? And we make excuses and we, we, we know what's right. And we know what God has asked us to do. But we say, eh, I can't remember what he said, you know, back in the word. You know, well, I'm just too tired. I can't do that. I work so hard. I can't go serve the Lord in these different ways. It's amazing how much you can do for the kingdom of God if you just say, you know what? There's a million things to be discouraged about, but I'm going to do the Lord's will regardless. I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to do it. All of us, at the end of the day, um, we've got to ask ourselves a question. If you say, I can't. I can't. Like these letters here, some of this, and this is, I was just pulling some of them out. Um, like that can devastate your heart. And those are just letters. There's emails. There's other things. There's comments. And if you're going to take a stand, if you're going to serve the Lord you're going to take some rocks thrown your way. And, and if you say, I can't take the criticism, I can't take the potential rejection. Like what if I'm sitting with someone and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, Pastor Ryan always says, just think this one thought, how can I help this person follow Jesus? How can I help this person? Everyone's at a different place, right? Everyone's got different steps to take, but, but how can I help this? What if I pry just a little too far? And what if we're just having coffee and we've got a good friendship and we've had uh, good times together? And they say, you know what? Well, don't, don't dig. What are you doing? And you think you're better than me? And then like, it gets crazy and weird and like, I lose that friendship. He said, I don't want to risk that. Because being a disciple maker makes you ask the hard questions, makes you confront things spiritually. It's difficult. And you've got to ask yourself, which kingdom am I going to serve? Which kingdom am I going to focus on? Which kingdom am I going to love more? The one that's shakable? Because I'll be bowing down to fear the rest of my life. Or the one that's unshakable, the one I'm trying to help this other person to experience, but I need it to grow in my own heart as well. 
Which kingdom are you going to serve? Ultimately, you've got to get a new heart. Ezekiel 36 says this is the blessing of the new covenant, right? This is what we have in Christ. We can have a new heart. And you've got to recognize that, that if you fear um, serving the Lord in certain ways, and he's asking you to do it, um, and you're saying, I do desire to do it, but I don't at the same time desire it as much as I should. When you place your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into you and it seals you. And yet, ultimately, you can't lose the Holy Spirit, but you can experience tangibly the power of the Spirit in ways sometimes like you don't other times. And you've got to fan into flame through the Word, through prayer. Um, this is the abiding. This is the communion that you have with God that each one of us get every day. And so as that Spirit, as God's Spirit is fanned into flame, you're going to realize that you were instantaneously given a new spiritual heart in Christ, one that desires the things God desires and loves the things God loves, but hates the things God hates. And yet at the same time, it's a gradual work, right? It's like heart surgery. You don't get up running the next day. You know you got a new heart, but it just takes time to work into it. When I think about my anxiety stuff and I think about growing up with this anxiety disorder and, and being literally every day handcuffed proverbially and just in bondage to my own fears and my own anxieties publicly. I didn't want to be embarrassed. I didn't want to be in large crowds. I was just anxious all the time. I would have never come to something like this. Even a small group like this, I would have been like, ah, I don't want to, because I didn't want anyone to talk to me. I, I didn't want to, ah, I, just, I just lived in bondage and fear. And over the years, I've seen victory in Christ over it. And at first, I prayed over and over, God, take, when I first got saved, I was like, oh, okay. And I prayed, God, take this away. Take this anxiety away. Take it away. And I prayed a bunch of times, and it, and it just wasn't happening. And yet I found, and Tara and I have found in my life, gradually I've had victory over this. And, and when people ask me, what's changed over the years? And I tell them, gradually, my heart, like it, I, had a, I had it planted in my heart 10 years ago when I placed my faith in Jesus, that I wanted to follow Jesus. But like I love the things of God much more now than I did back then. And what happened was gradually I started to devote myself more and more and more to the things of God and living for his glory and each day denying myself and seeking his kingdom first, I started to see that my fears started to change. They started to diminish. They didn't overwhelm me like they did before because all of my fears were based on my kingdom being shaken. And when you realize that fundamentally, the vast majority of the fears in your life, the things that hold you in bondage are, are fears that your kingdom will be shaken. And you realize maybe the issue isn't be anxious or don't be anxious. Maybe the issue is which kingdom are you going to choose to live in? And every day as you deny yourself and live in his kingdom, you might see um, those fears go away. You might see them change. Verses 7 through 9. Here we go again. They're back at it. But it intensifies. Fourth thing we see is the level of impact equals the level of warfare. The level of impact equals the level of warfare. It says, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, so now there's more people involved, and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites. So here's what's important. This is north, south, east, and west. Everywhere around Jerusalem is now ganging up on them. Heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches, so the areas that were wide open, anyone can come in and out of this city, were beginning to be closed. They were very angry. 
And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So he takes measures both physically and that they got a guard um, and spiritually. We're going to keep praying. We're always praying. We're always praying. You see that over and over and over. Anytime conflict, anytime issues, we're going to stop. We're going to pray right in the middle of this thing. Here's, here, here's the big idea. The level of your impact in the kingdom of God will dictate the amount that you get attacked. The devil has his foot, proverbially speaking, on the necks of so many Christians. They're just disarmed. But they don't make an impact in the kingdom. They don't talk about their faith. They don't think much about their faith. They would claim to follow Jesus, but they ain't got much going on with Jesus. And the devil wants them to stay that way. Because what better trick, what better deception to think, well, I got a relationship with God when you don't really have a relationship with God. Because if you think you have one, but you don't, the last thing you're thinking is, I need one. (laughs) You ain't coming thinking, hey, give me the good news of Jesus. No, you think you got it already. And so he keeps a lot of people, especially in the evangelical church, just beat down thinking you already got the good stuff, but they haven't really tasted the good stuff. And so what happens? Those who overcome it, who are led by the Spirit, and they, um, they start to experience some victory in Christ, and they start to make an impact for the kingdom, and they start sharing the good news of Jesus and helping people follow Jesus, and they start to experience all of this, uh, you will see the level of warfare. The attacks on your life will go up because the devil definitely doesn't want you making an impact. And you'll see things in a new way. You've got to be aware of that spiritual warfare. We talk about that, obviously, on a regular basis. Here's what he experienced in verses 7, 8, and 9. The enemies grew, so it went from just a couple guys to a whole bunch of people, north, south, east, and west. They increased in anger. The planning intensified. They even got violent. The attacks escalated. Some of us, we get confused when we see this because we think, well, I thought that when I was in that hardship, um, that if I just had some faith and I was obedient, that things would get easier, that God would be pleased with that, and he would take things easy on me a little bit as if God is some landlord who's ruling on your life um, to make it miserable. Uh, Listen, that's not the way it works. It's a blessing, first off, to be part of the mission of God. And you can take it as a badge of honor when the enemy attacks you because he knows you're doing something impactful. Disciple making is ultimately, it's the opposite of being safe. But what you lack in safety, you experience in God's presence. That's the promise of the Great Commission that we go and make disciples and surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. You experience, I tell you what, I can't over emphasize this more. There is nothing more adventurous, nothing more exciting in your life than being on mission with Jesus. There's nothing that you will experience. And we can experience the presence of God tangibly in lots of ways on earth. But there is a way that you experience. It's like experiencing community at Thanksgiving is much different than community when you're in the trenches in the middle of war. Both of them are beautiful community, but they're different. And when you're on mission, making an impact out there, you will see the presence of God in a way that is unique that you can't experience in other ways. And I don't want you to miss out on that because it's, it's beautiful and it's a little bit addictive because you think, I don't ever want to go back. I don't ever want to go back. Here's what I found in the life of believers. Um, it's different for each person, but there's a tipping point. Now, I'm, I'm speaking about mission and and those who aren't, um, on mission, making disciples, but then I'm, I'm talking about just you investing in uh, your life in Christ overall as well. That the, 
that tipping point where you realize, okay, I'm giving God a little bit more of my life, a little bit more of my life, and, and then it tips and you get overwhelmed at, at the presence of God and how amazing God is. And the good news of Jesus becomes real in a way that maybe it wasn't before. You knew it cognitively, but now you're experiencing it and it just changes everything and it changes the way you view things. Let me give you a little taste of this. This is, a, this is an amazing little setup here. This is what happens when you've got three hours to put together a weighted scale and you can't find one in the basement of the church. So, <clears throat> this is what I perceive. This is duct tape, by the way. That's good. This is what I perceive most of us feel like. Even when we come um, to a, something like this. And this is our lives, this is our investment, right? That you can put um, all your eggs, so to speak, here, your rocks in, in one basket. Here's the shakable kingdom. Here's the unshakable kingdom. This is the mission of God to, to serve him, to love him, to make an impact in his kingdom. And this is your goals and your plans and your life. Um, when we come here, and, and some of us, we feel exhausted because we're worn out and we had a hard, long day at work. And when you hear old Pastor Ryan up here talking about being on mission, um, you just think, I'm already weighted down with so much drama, so much junk. You know what bills I got to pay? You know what decisions I got to make? You know what's going on at home? And you're talking about making disciples? You're talking about helping helping people follow Jesus? And it looks like something that's available. It's up there. But right now, you got so much going on in life, it just feels like you'd be adding more, more, and more. You'd be like, I can't take any of that. But that's the problem is that when you sit here claiming to have life in Christ and you're expecting God to just shower blessings from above on the drama and the heaviness that you already got going, there's not much freedom in that. Because the Bible says you've got to lose your life to gain it. And what you're saying is you want to ultimately keep what you already got going on. You just need God's guidance. You need God to, to bless you and, and to pour a little bit of God onto your brokenness. But here's Here's the truth. And I don't know where this tipping point is for your life. But you say, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to serve the local church. I'm going I'm to finally dig into the word and get serious about my relationship with Jesus. You know what? I used to think I couldn't make disciples at all. But if I just have that thought and I pray, God, help me. Help me to help the next person follow you. Whatever that means, just help me to know. And then you hear from him. And you could have that conversation with your coworker that you never had before. And then all of a sudden, you're in the trenches. You're going on mission trips. You're starting to see your city in a way that you never saw before. You thought, man, I, I look at my city, I think, what restaurants they got? What entertainment they got to bless me? And now you're thinking on a daily basis, how can I bless my city? How can I make this a better place? How can I reach people? And all of a sudden, things shift, and it's gradual, and there's a tipping point, and you find yourself so burdened by the things of God, so invested in abiding in Christ and caring about people coming into his kingdom, that all of a sudden, here's what happens, and here's the great beauty, is you still got a family, you still got a job, you still got all the stuff that you had before, but you're looking up, recognizing the heavier it is in my heart for the kingdom of God, the lighter it feels like the things that used to weigh me down are. And I know I got a family, but I'm confident God's taking care of this. 
this. And I know I got drama that I'm going to have to deal with, but God's got it. And I know that I got jobs to think about and I got places to, 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 to go and make decisions in life, but God's got it. Because when you get consumed with God and it weighs on you heavily, it changes your perspective on everything else. And I can't, I can't explain it, but if you're, if you're like this, then you've got to understand when I read these verses to you and you say, the greater the impact, the greater the warfare, you would say, why would I ever want to make an impact for the kingdom of God? Who wants more drama? But when you actually jump into it, you realize there is a freedom. There is a freedom in Christ that you experience in the presence of God that makes everything else look completely different than it did before. And you know when you get to this place, you don't ever want to go back to this place. And you go from a kingdom that was shaken and swirling around and getting beat up by the wind and the waves to a confidence in Christ. And you go from hearing testimonies about people being healed to experiencing healing. And you go from hearing people tell you about their relationship with God and you tried church out a few times, but you never quite caught it to saying, I love it and I love the Lord now and I don't ever want to go back. And I can't explain that to you. I can set up a silly little duct tape weighted scale. But until you start to see that tipping point in your own life where you start investing yourself in God and his kingdom. I I, I stand up here and I say, I I can't give it to you. I can kind of describe it. But you got to start putting your rocks in this basket. Last but not least. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked in a rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. How many times an angel show up? People in the, in, the, in the Bible say, do not be afraid. When it comes to the Lord's work, do not be afraid. Because they're sitting right here. It's easy to say, do not be afraid when you've tasted what confidence in the Lord looks like. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Last but not least, you've got to remember who you're fighting for. You've got to remember who you're fighting for. Here's, here, here's what's going on. The external enemy is now infiltrated inside. And this is the most dangerous kind. They were being attacked on the outside. Now they got discouragement on the inside. Now their own people are struggling. Here's what ultimately is happening. These external pressures are amplifying internal struggles. He's saying, hey, in Judah, that's their own people. That's the Jews building this. They're saying, hey, this is too big. The people who are carrying the weight, there's not enough of us, and, and we're failing. 
There's too much rubble. There's too much going on. We can't do this. And then to top it off, now there's confusion because they, they hear rumors about stuff. Our enemies are saying, hey, guess what? We're going to sneak up on you. We're going to get you. We're going to kill you. So you can't sleep at night. You're going to have mental unrest. It's going to be horrible. And then guess what? All the Jews from all around, because they hear these same rumors, they're coming to us 10 times. And they're saying, guess what? They're coming for you. Enemies are coming for you. Enemies are coming for you. So we're sitting here feeling like we don't have enough people to do the job. And I'm kind of tired anyway. And the rubble is ridiculous. And now I'm hearing that we could be attacked at any moment. And the Jews who, who, who are should be supporting this are coming to us and be like hey just give you an update same update as five minutes ago enemies coming like you're just like i can't handle this this is mental torment and they're starting to get discouraged and so what does nehemiah do he's a good leader and he realized people are getting tired so what, what, what do i gotta do and he gives them several things that he does here he, he number one he gives them family support and so he takes them and he says listen there's some space by the walls where i want you to gather and i don't want you to just gather with anyone i want you to gather with your own family with your clan right? If you're going to be a disciple maker, you've got to have people who support you, who love you, who are there and saying, listen, I know this is hard. You got pastors, you need to support your pastors, your leaders, people in ministry, support them. Ministry, missionaries in the church, right? That's you. You got to support each other. This is what grow groups are about. I call grow groups and I rarely use this definition because it scares people, but it's a family of missionaries, a family of missionaries, people who say, we're going to go live on mission. We're going to come back, gather, strengthen each other and go back out. We're going to go together. We're going to go individually. We're a family of missionaries. He does that. Number two, he equips them with weapons. He says, here, you're going to take some stuff and you're going to need it because it's going to be hard. I'm going to give you swords. I'm going to give you spears. I'm going to give you bows just in case, right? Now we know in Ephesians 6, we got armor from the Lord. We got spiritual weapons. We don't need these physical ones. But then number three, he he replaces efficiency with encouragement. Here's the thing. We built half the wall and you know, some hard nosed leaders are going to say, just push to the end, get to the end. But he says, let's pull back. I'm going to take some of y'all who are building the wall. I'm going to let you stand here and guard things. And so we could get done quicker, but we need to do this in a healthy way. You got to know that leaders need to know that. We think about this building project. I don't know what all God's going to do with it. I don't know where, where it's going to go, but there might be times where we say, you know what, let's pull back. Let's pull back. The congregation's getting worn out. We can sense it. We can tell. We're not going to, we're not going to just push, push, push because people are not projects. People are people. We've got to take care of people. We love people. We're not going to go out there and try to reach them if we ain't taking care of ourselves. We've got to be healthy if we're going to be trying to spread something that's healthy. And number four, he rallies the troops. Sometimes you just got to get together. I hope Wednesday night is a bit of a rally for you. I hope you come here and you're like, eh, it's an hour, but hopefully I get, I, I get a little rallied up and get, get, get excited a bit. And last but not least, and this is the most important, he reminds them of the Lord. He says this, remember the Lord and fight. Remember the Lord and fight. Remember the Lord and fight. Jesus is everything. He's our motivation. He, he's our, our, the reason we're doing what we're doing. He's the call. He's the comfort. We're walking with him. We're walking for him. We're doing all of this with God. It centers on God. God is every part of it. And you got family. You got people that he's put in your life and you, you fight for them. We're in this together. This is your church. You got to be careful. This is the famous, this is one of many famous passages in Nehemiah where they're, 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 they, got, they got spears, they got swords, they got bows, but you got to make sure that you don't get discouraged. You got to make sure that when you're watching for the enemy on the outside, that, that you don't let the enemy on the inside, which is discouragement, beat you up. And Nehemiah is a good leader and he knows how to take care of his people. And you say, man, I need help. 
Let me end with this. We know we're in a battle. Because earlier I told you, you can put all your rocks in this cup here. Here's the thing. In life, this is going to be a battle. This is going to be a battle. So you ain't getting out of a battle. You can fight for yourself. You can fight for the Lord. You can get to the end of this life and say, what did I do? I had a great career. I made a great uh, living. I, I did a whole bunch of stuff. We retired well. I enjoyed life. Man, I hope you do enjoy life. Ecclesiastes says in the Lord, you got the right to enjoy life. Drink some good drink, eat some good food. But if that's all you did, and God's saying, you're about to spend eternity with me, and, and you know your legacy is not about what you can leave behind, but who you're bringing with you, who's going to come here forever, then what disciples did you make? The enemy wants you to fight a battle that's not worth fighting. The Lord has fought battles for us. He's won the battle over your depression, over your anxiety, over your fears. Because if he's won the battle over your soul, the rest of that stuff's details. If he can take care of you spiritually, the rest of that stuff's details. And on a cross 2,000 years ago, he won the war. He fought a battle for you, and he did it by denying himself and sacrificing himself. And so we receive that. We rest in that. But as you leave here tonight, you think to yourself, who am I fighting for? Because when I gave my life to the Lord 10 years ago, it wasn't random. People prayed for me for years. People poured into my life for years. They talked to me about Jesus for years. It took me years before I finally saw that light and placed my faith in him. Who are you fighting for? You recognize Jesus fought for me. He died for me. Who am I going to deny myself for? So that maybe days from now, hours from now, maybe years from now, they can look back and say, I entered the kingdom of God because there was a disciple maker who was insecure sitting in a Wednesday night Bible study thinking, I can't do this. But then he did it because the spirit filled him up and he got in my word and he took it out there. And I'm, thankful that he fought for me to tell me that Jesus fought for me. Who are you fighting for? Let's pray.